climate change is here, it is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended, the era of global boiling has arrived. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders past, present, and those that will come, that will earn that honour in the future. We acknowledge that we will never have climate justice until we have justice for First Nations people in this country. We also acknowledge and hope that we realise the value in channeling the ancient wisdom that they acquired from nurturing their land and their communities for millennia before they were invaded. Purpose. There's a lot of power in purpose. And even more so when that purpose is something we discover together. And when things begin to crumble like like I think many of us have experienced this week when we hear, for instance, our, our global chief, the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres, telling us that humanity is in the hot seat and that the era of global boiling has arrived. And, and that was for once a statement or a warning that caught the world's attention. His term global boiling ranked 100 out of 100 here in Victoria on the Google searches and 91 in New South Wales and so on. And it was trending in social media as a hashtag, hashtag global boiling. And by the way, the hashtag climate emergency has been trending in the last days as well here in Australia with more than 10,000 tweets counted with the hashtag climate emergency. So the media is onto it, the mainstream media, not just the sustainable hour any longer. And it's really boiling with headlines such as, and this is the New Daily, which is a news outlet here in Australia for almost 3 million readers, where the headline on 28th of July went, we are running out of time to stop Earth's climate catastrophe. The world is facing an existential climate threat. So in, in moments like this, it's good to be reminded, and this was the ABC that interviewed Dr. Sally Gillespie, a psychologist who's written a book about the climate crisis and consciousness, reimagining our world and ourselves. There is research to show that climate campaigners who are well engaged and well networked actually have an increase in psychological resilience and in creativity and a strong sense of life meaning and purpose. So there is actual gains in becoming engaged with the climate crisis. We are quickly coming to that point where we have the global outlook and normally Colin Market OAM I would say normally I look forward to your presentation of the news from around the planet but after this week I'm not so sure if we can look forward to what you have for us. Yes, understandably, Mick, and uh, I'll try and, I, I don't have anything too light, but I'll try and lighten it a little bit. The roundup this week begins in India, where the four-day G20 summit leaders of the world's wealthiest nations, they heard the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres list the extent of current heat waves, bushfires and floods that are affecting the world at the moment. 
And he had the stark warming that climate change is here, he said. It is terrifying. And this is just the beginning. The only surprise is the speed of change. Following this explosive start, negotiations began, and to nobody's surprise, the summit ended without a commitment to phase down fossil fuels or to increase the development of renewable energy. This was largely because of opposition from Saudi Arabia, China and Russia. The series of deadlocked deals coming as they did in the middle of a summer of record-breaking global heat are the latest indicators that the countries contributing the most to the climate crisis are almost certainly going to undermine and stop any similar agreements at the COP28 global climate talks in November. And this in turn is going to jeopardise key Paris Agreement targets. It's yet another sign that the fossil fuel industries are going to use their billions of dollars and devious political clout to halt any progress. Then from America comes a report compiled by the UN Environment Programme and Columbia Law School's Sabin Center for Climate Change. It said that there were 2,180 climate change litigation cases between 2020 and 22, and the report excluded cases that were merely mentioned climate change or indirectly related to it, like litigation over deforestation or the health impacts of air pollution. To be included, the cases must show insights into how much a particular polluter contributed to an extreme event. And this, in turn, illustrates that environmentalists are looking for different and new ways to fight in what is increasingly looking like a struggle between science and knowledge and money and power. Meanwhile, new research from Greenland shows that early Arctic spring has been replaced by what is described as seasonal extremes, and this is affecting the balance of nature. In examining data from the past 25 years, Scientists found plants and animals reaching the limits of their ability to respond to climate variability. For most of the year, snow and ice covers the coast of northeast Greenland. But every spring, the temperatures rise and the ice melts to uncover a landscape of flowering plants. And that attracts insects and migratory birds from all over the world to nest through the brief Arctic summer. But since 1995, Researchers have also arrived each spring to monitor and record all of these events as a short spring and summer season unfolds. And this seasonal science helps the scientists understand how physical and biological events shift as climate change progresses. The new research published last Wednesday in the science magazine Current Biology looks at that 25 years of data and the results indicate that what was a stable pattern is now all but gone. The study determined instead that the earlier Arctic springs are being replaced by extreme yearly viability in the times and the physical biological measurements. This in turn affects the migrations of insects and that affects those of spiders, birds and the entire ecosystem. Everything has become random and unpredictable. The report called for more urgent research and study on a much wider survey. And another report published last week in the UK, an international team of scientists said that widespread summer heat waves that are now being experienced in the Northern Hemisphere 
are not just measurably hotter because of climate change, they're also set to become the norm. The report was titled World Weather Attribution, was published by the Grattan Institute. It studied data from North America, Asia and Europe, and the scientists concluded that heat waves will be common in just a few decades unless greenhouse gas emissions are immediately cut. They predicted that if emissions continue on the same increasing path as now, the two degrees Celsius mark will be passed in 30 years. Due to warming caused by burning fossil fuels and other human activities, the authors wrote, events like these can now be expected approximately every 15 years in North America, about once every 10 years in Southern Europe, and approximately once every five years in China. Their analysis also concluded that greenhouse gas pollutants made the European heat wave 2.5 degrees Celsius hotter than the uh, North American heat wave. And finally, on the day that that report was published, Iraq posted a record 60 degrees Celsius heat among widespread power cuts in the country because their power stations were unable to cope with the extreme heat and they shut down under the strain. Iraq's power generators mostly use gas that's pumped in a pipeline from Iran, and neither country was represented in the G20 talks in India. And on that ambiguous political note, I end my World Roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our first guest today is Freya Leonard, who's the Get Off Gas, Friends of the Earth, Melbourne, NAM campaigner. Freya, some huge news last week on the gas front in um, Victoria. Yes, super exciting, Tony. This is something that I've been working on for over three years, is a commitment from the Victorian government to refuse new um, gas connections. So uh, I started at work on this through local government when I was working for Lock the Gate as the Renewables Not Gas Program Coordinator and was told unambiguously by a number of councils it's never going to happen. Um, as recently as last December was talking to a representative from the Energy Department who said unambiguously it's not going to happen, we're never going to ban gas connections and here we are, and I don't know if it's because of the um, record global average temperatures that we've seen earlier this month, the record Antarctic sea ice melt as well that has happened um, this month, and then all of the catastrophes that are hitting the global north that we've just been hearing about from Colin. Um, but something has certainly uh, triggered the Victorian government to decide that this is it. They've drawn a line in the sand and they're joining the ACT in refusing any new gas connections for any planning permits that are issued from the first day of next year. So it's very exciting news. It certainly is, Freya, but it's only the first step, isn't it? Because it's only new connections, isn't it? We really want to get the current connections off as well. That's right. So the Victorian government in making this announcement has also announced a $10 million package for expanded solar homes, so fitting solar panels, but also helping households to transition their old inefficient gas appliances to new electric appliances, and particularly for heating, which is around 74% of our gas use in a standard 
Victorian home. Um, we, you know, while we welcome this announcement, we're very much yes and about it. Yes, and we need to make sure that rentals aren't left behind. They're a third of the households across Victoria. They're the homes of some of the lowest income people across Victoria and the thermal standards of those homes are mandated to be minimum two stars. But we know anecdotally that a lot of rental properties don't even meet the basic standards that are set under the Residential Tenancies Act. So we need a package of policy measures and reforms that are going to compel rentals to fuel switch and we also need and uh, we need to make sure that we are maximising efficiency in all households. And this is something that the government has overlooked time and time again. That And although recommended by um, Infrastructure Victoria, that efficiency be the first step in managing our energy here in Victoria, they just keep sort of throwing new electric appliances and solar panels, and that's great, but we don't know how much energy we need until we know how much energy we don't need. We need to make sure that our buildings are as comfortable and thermally efficient as possible and then serviced by appliances that are also at the you know best standard of efficiency. On behalf of our listeners, I think uh, we all thank you, Freya, for the work that you have been doing in this space. And and what a thing to celebrate here, because what this means, I think, is that the story is beginning to change very, very quickly. Electricity is taking over, folks. Take that, Viva Energy, who wants to build a gas hub here in Geelong. Take that, the people who come after us. We talked about that last week. We have a, a radio show that comes after ours on the Pulse, and they keep talking about that, ah, we have to put on candles in the night because renewables don't work, etc., etc. Yes, they do. And now we have the government telling that story. That's a headline. That's a headline that needs to spread, and it will spread very quickly into not just industries, but also among you know us, the people. Indeed. And I mean, look, renewables have been shovel ready for decades. It's really just been a lack of political will that has held us, um, tied us to fossil fuels for so long and certainly at great expense to the climate. So one of the steps that we are putting in place now is um, we've launched the Get Off Gas Pledge. We're inviting everybody who has a gas connection to their home and would like to get off gas to take the pledge. It's um, The web address is getoffgas, all one word, .org.au. Uh, we already have over 170, 180 pledges, despite having not really pushed it out there much since launching it a couple of weeks ago. Um, we are finding that we're getting a lot of comments from people who are, you know, particularly renters or people living in public housing who are desperate to get off gas. They just can't afford the escalating gas bills. They don't want to have that really unhealthy pollutant blurting carbon monoxide and formaldehyde and fine particulate matter into their homes, increasing the asthma risk in their children, respiratory illnesses for the older people. You know, so we're urging everybody to go to getoffgas.org.au, take the pledge and then send an email, which is part of the process. Um, it goes straight to your local MP and to the Energy Minister and it's really going to make a big difference. So it's great to see the um, the exciting level of take-up of that. Get off gas. I got off gas two years ago and was surprised that they charged me. They charged me for taking away the meter. Surely just getting that lifted would be a huge improvement. They charged me $160, I think it was, for getting off gas. Well, can I tell you that other people have been paying over $1,000 for mm. abolishment of the meter. Uh, the Victorian government has now capped that at $220 to have your meter abolished. 
yes, we argued to the Essential Services Commission when they held a public consultation on this earlier this year that all the costs associated with gas abolishment should be front-loaded at point of connection because at the moment it's free to connect to gas, or it has been free to connect to gas, and... Um, and then very, very expensive to get off gas. So we were arguing that it should be completely the other way around while people were still able to make new gas connections, which now is going to be a lot harder for people. A last word, Freya? Uh, yes. I also, while I'm here, would really like to um, point to a new project that's being proposed for Gippsland to use brown coal to produce hydrogen for export to Japan. Inherent in that project is the world's largest, most ambitious CCS project to try and offset some of the 730,000 cars worth of emissions each year that will be produced by this project. Uh, 150 kilometres of, of pipeline going across farmland between Loyang and Hastings and uh, Western Port is absolutely a time bomb and it can't be allowed to go ahead. There's just, in this day and age, absolutely no excuse to be opening up a new coal project. So we're really urging people to get along and sign a petition that we've created on the Parliament of Victoria website. The web address for that is bit.ly forward slash no numeral two HESC. And I believe that those both of the links for Get Off Gas and the no to HESC petition will be available to listeners when the podcast is uploaded. We'll put them in the show notes of this podcast and you can simply go to the sustainablehour.au and you'll find everything there. And a big congratulations on this win. It sounds like you won't be out of work though. <laughs> okay, so next step is in the tw next 12 months, I want the Victorian government to produce a um, comprehensive roadmap for the retirement of the gas distribution network, the pipeline system. So watch this space. We'll be we back will. on the show in about 12 months celebrating that. Yeah, good. Thanks Thank very you. much Thanks. for the opportunity and thanks to the Sustainable Hour for keeping it real for so long. In the midst of change, we're on the line. Smoke in the sky, oceans in decline. The red cliffs deny, but we know the sign. The climate ain't blind, we're running out of time. Destruction, pollution, it's all too real. But listen to solution, here's the deal. Contribution to the future's real revolution, evolution. Time to heal. Outrage strikes like a hurricane. Heartbreak is the world in pain. The power of love is our domain. The garden of the heart does sustain. Deep in the dark, a light is burning. Optimism spark. The tide is turning. Innovations called. The world is learning. Revolution, evolution. Time to heal. So let the outrage fuel the quest in every age. We've had a test. Turn the page, give it our best. Beyond ourselves, think of the rest. Climate is a changing, it's a bitter pill. But there's no stop to human will. We'll transform and rebuild until our mother earth is healed. And oh so still, oh so still, oh so still. Our next guest is Joanna Partica. Uh, she classifies herself as an artist, an activist, and a political staffer. Now, I find that fascinating that an activist and a political staffer in the uh, one person is in both categories. So I can't wait to hear about that, Joanna. So, how do you balance those two? 
Um, well, I suppose I am very lucky in that I work for the Greens, which is a progressive party um, whose roots are in activism and protest. Um, in fact, the, the entire party grew from direct action campaigns, um, particularly in Tasmania. And so I do have very strong support from within the party for the campaigning activities that I do outside of work. Um, I've worked for the Greens for about five years in, in different capacities, but I was then led to direct action campaigns through my day job. Um, even though I'm very passionate about what I do at work and feel like I'm making an impact through, you know, working within the system, I can see also the, the many flaws and limitations of the system and felt the need to step outside of that and kind of attack things from the outside as well. The stepping outside the system, what has that been for you? Um, so for me, I guess uh, the the main step outside of the system, I guess, is being or the biggest step and the, the most um, prominent one in my life at the moment is working with the Disrupt Bar Up Hub campaign here in Western Australia, which uh, is a direct action campaign the aim of which is to end industrial expansion at Murajuga in the Pilbara in WA. Um, there are, at the moment, there are multiple, um, you know, it's kind of like the gas, the gas hub of, of Western Australia. There are multiple projects out there, but at the moment, uh, one of the biggest players there is Woodside and they're seeking to expand a bunch of their facilities. And there are also various other industrial players who are seeking to either expand facilities or build new facilities or um, explore and tap new gas fields. Uh, and so our aim is to ensure that doesn't happen. Uh, in its entirety, the Barrup Hub, as it's, as it's sort of mapped out, um, if it goes to plan, it will be four times bigger than Adani and will emit. Uh, when, I, when I kind of did the you know, the maths just in terms of um, contextualising the the emissions just to kind of understand it more myself because um, it's 6 billion tonnes of CO2 over its lifetime, which sounds like a lot, but you don't really, you don't really have that context, but it is equivalent to the carbon emissions of 50,000 homes worth of energy use every single day, which, and over 50 years, which is just in this context as we, we're talking about earlier in terms of the, you know, all of the climate events um, happening in the Northern Hemisphere. It is just, it, it's an unconscionable decision to allow that to go ahead. And what steps have you taken specifically to stop that, you and, and the groups that you belong to? Yeah, so we have to this point, uh, because, you know, Murajuga is, uh, you know, thousands of kilometres away from Perth and most of our campaigners are based in Perth. Most of the population of WA is in Perth. And so we've kind of concentrated our actions thus far to Perth with the intention of uh, towards the end of the year going up to the bar up to, um, you know, take a direct action up there. But to this point, our campaign has been about, you know, bringing the public on board and mobilising people within Perth and growing the, the campaign that way um, with the intention of, of taking it up north. But so we've taken a bunch of actions um, targeting various parts of the system. So 
um, here in WA Woodside is a very um, prominent sponsor of, of our main cultural institutions. And so we've targeted institutions that have taken sponsorship money from Woodside. We've targeted Woodside itself in various ways. Um, we have also targeted the WA state government for the you know complicit role they play. They allow fossil fuel companies to kind of run the state essentially. Um, and those actions have been disruptive. They've been outside of the law usually uh, and they uh, can be polarising, but I think ultimately they are opening up the conversation about this, this project that Woodside is seeking to develop both in WA and we've seen a lot of interest coming from the eastern states and overseas as well, which we think is a really big win because a lot of the time people don't really care about poor little WA. Isn't that, Joanna, a, a dangerous path, this thing about going outside the law? I'm just foreseeing what would happen in, let's say, half a year, one year, as more and more young people come into the stage, and they are desperate, aren't they? Because the adults, so to say, have done nothing in the last 30 years. And the next step being, I can see that happening around cities all over the planet at the moment, the, the tire extinguishers are celebrating every weekend. Uh, in Berlin, 50 SUVs have now been punctured in Copenhagen, in, in London, and also here in Australia, SUVs are being punctured in the night by young people who are desperate. That's one little step crossing that line into being, you could say, more confrontational. And mm -hmm. what I fear is that, that that moving into that space is not going to end in a good place mm. because there will be a reaction to that. Right. I mean, my take on that is that that reaction is the – that's – That's the intention. It's it's to provoke. It's to uh, inconvenience people. It's sometimes maybe to enrage people uh, because the the methods that we're all using at the moment, playing nice and being polite, asking politely, um, setting meetings with ministers, and like that is not working. And so at this point, this I think a lot of climate campaigners. This feels like the the strategy that we have at our disposal now and we yeah i guess that's the thing like you said we're we're all desperate and this is this is what we feel we need to do at this point i just feel personally for instance that when we talk about puncturing somebody else's car that you're stepping into a space where you're not respecting that person and you're not having a conversation that would lead to that this person would buy an electric car. Maybe on the contrary, that person would get together with a couple of others and they would stand and protect their cars. Mm. Yeah, and would, yeah. And they would then, then also uh, to smear the greens. Uh, you're really um, putting yourself up into a difficult position. I was going to ask about that, Joanna. We know that uh, here in Victoria, The Greens are always a subject of smearing politically from the right of centre political parties who are recipients of big donations from fossil fuel companies. We know that in WA, where you are, fossil fuel companies are the biggest industries. Mm -hmm. How... Uh, representative are you as Greens and how are you 
how are you received in the general community? Are you, you're no longer seen as, here anyway, Greens are no longer seen as tree huggers. They're now seen as economy wreckers. That's the way they're being portrayed here. Right. Is it the same there? Um, well, I mean, I don't really know how to answer that question because I feel like I come to this space with my non-Greens hat on. Um, so what I do outside of my my day job is like, sure, it absolutely does reflect on the Greens. And I've had many conversations with people within the party about, you know, how my activities outside of work might reflect on the party. Um, and absolutely, like you said, you know, the, the people who are going to be critical of the Greens, regardless that, you know, I've been called many things after participating in this campaign. And that then also reflects on the Greens. But that's not to say that the people who are critical of me and the Greens wouldn't already, you know, it doesn't take much to prompt them to, to say awful things about us. But I would say broadly that the the Greens are perceived in a similar way over here as what you're describing over East. Um, yeah. Mm. I just want to, um, like, clarify, I can't speak to the campaigns or the activists who puncture tyres. That's not a strategy that our campaign has used. Um, I, I don't know what their theory of change is with that, but I do want to clarify that Disrupt Right Pub focuses on targeting, um, you know, the the system in terms of um, the, the government and industry. Um, I think, you know, individually, sure, there's so many things that we can do. We can switch to EVs if we can afford it, but it's not really going to come from individual changes. It's going to come from a systemic change. And so that's why our it feels like targeting individuals for their consumer choices um, that they make within a system that kind of pushes them to these kinds of products is not really... Um, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I haven't thought enough about that to really take a position. So I can't criticise those kinds of um, tactics, but I think we are very much not about, um, you know, picking out individuals and and criticising them for their choices. It's about the system and, um, yeah, messing shit up for, um, for big companies like Woodside. Activists have been raided. Their homes have been raided by not the ordinary police, but mm -hmm. by... Um, the counter-terror police, yeah. counter-terror yeah. police. Right, yeah. so that's been the pushback against non-violent direct action in, in Perth, and it, that's a trend all over the world too, and more and more people are, are taking that on, pushing back against that and saying, um, yeah, well, like who are the, who are the real lawbreakers here? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've actually been raided twice um, this year had my home raided twice. Um, it's it's a bit excessive to have the counter terror police, um, yeah, forcing their way into your home and taking your devices and everything. So, um, yeah, it's it's uncharted territory. I think we've seen this in WA. We've seen people raided for um, similar climate type activism um, a few years ago. But um, yeah, this is all very new to all of us. But Joanna, that seems mad in sense. You are the ones trying to protect the planet, and yet you're being labelled as the terrorists. 
Right. Yeah, no, it's all it's it's topsy turvy and um sadly, I mean like we have we have so much support I I from the public, but there are people who are so entrenched in that way of thinking that, you know, Woodside is is good for the economy and they employ people and that we are actually we fit the profile of terrorists, which is um yeah, completely upside down. Joanna, what was the result of the uh, raids on your premises? Did they take away your computers? Yeah. Uh, did they give them back eventually? I have they don't have them back. Yes, they have, yeah. So I have, like I said, I've been raided on two separate occasions. Um, uh, both times I had my computer and my phone taken, so I'm now onto my third laptop and phone of the year. The the two phones and laptops they have in their possession um, and they tried to compel me to give my passwords over so they could access all my data. I refused and then so I was charged for refusing to obey that order. So, yeah, I have um, multiple legal cases happening concurrently trying to fight all of this. Um, and also I'm not sure if you saw in the news last week that Woodside has threatened to sue um, some activists uh I'm one of those people. I received a letter from Woodside last month. Uh, yeah, so on top of the criminal proceedings against me, I also have potential civil proceedings, um, which feels like a it's an escalation. Vendetta, isn't it? Yeah. An over-response, over and I think they need to be mindful of what happened to guns in Tasmania. Right, right, they, exactly. They tried a similar stunt. Mm -hmm. well, the, the difficulty is guns was not as well-resourced as Woodside. And well, Woodside, all the time that they're taking litigation with Joanna, they're stopping her from doing anything else. That's right. And it means yeah. nothing to them, the, the money of taking her to court. Mm -hmm. And yet it's stalling what she does. Yeah, and all mm. the time in that, that's emboldening other people to say this just is no justice in this. Exactly. More people yeah. standing up. But yeah. what, what we're hearing here, Joanna, there's one word for that, and that is oppression. And you know what? I think the good news is that when there's oppression, very, very often around the world, history shows that when there's oppression, there's rebellion. And when there's rebellion, the, the good people will eventually win. We've seen that, yeah. you know, through history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, yeah. So, so know that there are people out there who are going to support you. Certainly here in our context, we can say the Sustainable Hour is behind you. And also we can, we can promise you there are many of our listeners who will be as well. Thank when you so much. Yeah, I appreciate that. And stay strong, Joanna. The, when Violet Coco was uh, imprisoned for it's going to be 15 months, there were groups over with representing over a million, I think it was 1.3, 1.4 million people signed a letter just saying that was completely, uh, yeah, there was no justice in, in that at all. Right. And soon after that, she was released. So right. yeah, whatever they throw at you, there's going to be people that are going to stand up to support you. You certainly, yeah, thank you. certainly won't be alone. Mm, I do. I feel the solidarity. Thank you very much. Joanna, please don't be a stranger to us. We have to leave you now because we have more guests. But mm -hmm. uh, whatever's happening, if you think that we would give you a good platform, please just call in and, and we'll give it to you. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I'll definitely keep in touch. Thank you. One moment, this is a thriving beach bar full of young holidaymakers. The next... It's a pile of rubble. The consequences are clear and they are tragic. Children swept away by monsoon rains. Families running from the flames. 
workers collapsing in scorching heat. For vast parts of North America, Asia, Africa and Europe, it's a cruel summer. For the entire planet, it is a disaster. And for scientists, it is unequivocal. Humans are to blame. All this is entirely consistent with predictions and repeated warnings. The only surprise is the speed of the change. Climate change is here, it is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended, the era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Leaders must lead. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. No more delays, no more excuses. More broadly, many banks, investors and other financial actors continue to reward polluters and incentivize wrecking the planet. We need a course correction in the global financial system so that it supports accelerated climate action. That includes putting a price on carbon and pushing the multilateral development banks to overhaul their business models and approaches to risk. In all these areas, we need government, civil society, business and others working in partnership to deliver. The evidence is everywhere. Humanity has unleashed destruction. This must not inspire despair, but action. We can still stop the worst, but to do so, we must turn a year of burning heat into a year of burning ambition and accelerate climate action now. Our next guests are Kate and Tristan from a group called Just Collapse. Now, they've got a completely different approach to the situation that we've, we're facing. So, Kate, Tristan, who wants to go first? Uh, perhaps Kate can introduce herself and then I'll jump off the back of that. So, yes, um, I'm an Associate Professor in Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Tasmania and a co-founder of Just Collapse. I've also got a long history of activism in relation to um, Australian forests and wild places and the Greens um, and, yeah, likewise, I'm a veteran eco-social activist um, and uh, been in uh, many organisations. Most recently, I suppose, um, you know, Occupy Anonymous. I, I founded chapters of, and, uh, of um, Extinction Rebellion. I was state coordinator for Tasmania. Yeah, and, and Just Collapse is an activist platform for those who aren't familiar with it. Um, to progress justice, socio-ecological justice, in the face of inevitable and irreversible collapse. And Colin's introduction was a fantastic, horrific description of the process of collapse and not a, not a problem or set of problems that can be fixed. It's actually, it was a great introduction to a collapsing, dying earth. And in that, yeah, in that regard, it's important to acknowledge that Collapse is happening now. It's not something that's a, that's a that's a future event. We're 
many countries around the world are in the process of collapse and the people who aren't feeling collapse are not feeling it largely because of their privilege. And, um, and countries, nations, demographics are mobilising that privilege to advance their own, their own cause. And just to, to uh, hear your point of view on what happened in the last week, I was introduced to a new word, a scientific word, which was amok. And they also talk about the shutoff. It's about feedback loops, and it's about something that will lead to, scientists say, completely unlivable conditions for everyone up in the north. It has to do with the currents, something like the size of 8,000 Mississippi rivers flowing through the ocean, which is going to stop. And when that happens, yes. it has impact on everything. So I just wanted to hear your take on, on that side of, because that sounded to me like the most scary news. Yes, uh, Mike, uh, look, I would just say that climate is only one aspect of ecological, of our ecological overshoot predicament, that we're in a intersecting crises, feeding back upon another, forcing an inevitable collapse involving a six maths extinction. The tree of life is getting cut down to a bloody stump. That is uh, three species an hour uh, being pruned from the tree of life. And on a geological time timeline, this is a six mass extinction occurring in hundreds of years going back a couple of hundred years now, instead of thousands or millions of years like all the other mass extinction events. We're doing this in a couple of hundred years, not thousands, not millions of years. This is unprecedented. There's no collapse of any other previous civilization that is having this kind of global impact. This isn't like we're going to rise out of the Roman ashes and start something new. Yeah, so so this this is the premise of just collapse, that we recognise that this is way out of our control politically, socially, economically, in terms of energy choices, um, climate and ecologically. So Tristan and I have a background in what we would call 20th century activism, which is where we would place the Greens, where we would place NGOs like Friends of the Earth, We are very much focused on rethinking activism in the 21st century and responding um, by um, using a number of, we've got a, a number of, of things on the boil at the moment. Our campaign is currently to, to talk collapse because people are unaware of the, of the nature and severity of the predicament. And this leads to all kinds of maladaptive action in our, in our view um that uh for example um electrifying things we think is utterly pointless we're, we're facing an immense copper shortage that diesel power is required to do all the mining it means an expansion of mining massive mining boom as a result of trying to electrify or transition to renewables which really is only to maintain business as usual anyway and this is a vast ecological injustice being perpetrated under this greenwashing myth of something that cannot be done, can't be achieved, um, shouldn't be, and arguably shouldn't be done either. So that's, one, so that's one example is just to get the truth of quite the nature of, of what it is that we're actually experiencing and to get that out there so that people can act as, as knowledgeable individuals, because if you don't know, you can't act. Yeah. And another thing I'll just mention briefly is insurgent planning. 
So we um, provide resources and ideas about how communities um, can work together in collapse and may necessarily have to work together in opposition to governments and other sources of power to maintain basic needs as global supply chains crumble and food scarcity spreads globally. Mm. But I just wanted to make the point that the um, uh, collapse inside 200 years is simply a worldwide parallel of what has happened in Australia in the past 200 years, where the society has been completely turned around and uh, uh, the predominant society has just been swamped by a very caustic other society. And that's exactly what we're going through now on a worldwide scale. Yes, thanks. Thanks very much for raising that. It's something that I usually speak to straight up, but um, I will take a, a brief opportunity to mention that, that Lutra Whittle, where, where we live, um, prior to colonisation, this tiny island of Ta- now called Tasmania, um, was home to some 10 to 20,000 people across millennia, across many thousands of years, a, a stable, a relatively stable human population over many thousands of years. In those circumstances of the Holocene, which we have now left never to return, um, they they had stable ecosystems. Stable ecosystems where now 19 of 20 ecosystems are collapsing in Australia. So um, they had stable ecosystems, a relatively small human population, and they had a stable climate, of course, as well. 10 to 20,000 people. Tasmania now has half a million people. The climate is gone. It's gone. And the ecosystems are in collapse. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a useful perspective. Yeah, and, and we recognise this is, this is difficult. Com- this is, these are difficult conversations to have. The reality of our predicament is horrendous and, and very challenging. So then what? At the moment, I think a lot of people put their hope into, like we heard earlier, the news that gas is being banned in Victoria in new houses. That's something that gives people hope that, okay, the story is changing for the better. And what you're telling us is, no, forget it. It's all collapsing. But then what? What do these communities do that you're talking about? Yeah, so it's really interesting. We're, we track government responses at the moment globally. No, we're not, you know, not aware of the details of every single government energy response. But what we're seeing as a broad pattern is that, that because we've reached and hit peak oil, fossil fuels are actually running out. And what we're seeing is that there is a global um, response to energy security. It's got very little to do with climate change. So moving people off fossil fuels is an energy security response to get them onto alternative energy sources like renewables, which, as Tristan has already said, are not carbon neutral. They're highly ecologically destructive and they enable, they continue to enable business as usual of infinite growth on a finite planet. Um, So, yeah, it's really, really important to understand as well, as well as understanding the climate and ecological reality, but also the energy reality. And the political reality. Yeah. 
I have an advantage or disadvantage over everybody else on this particular panel in that I'm old. I'm very old. And I have lived through a time where change has occurred that I never, ever thought could change. I've lived through the division of Europe and the breakdown of the Berlin Wall. I've lived through apartheid and segregation in the US. And at the time, nobody thought that this was ever going to change. I've lived through a time when everybody smoked until the doctors stood up and they took action and they said, look, this is ridiculous, stop it. And it has, by and large, stopped in most societies. So although I share your cynicism, and I know that at the moment um, politics is being dictated by fossil fuel companies because of their huge amounts of money, and I know that making that money is driving them to keep on going and keep on bribing politicians in every nation to keep them in power, I am hopeful because I have seen so many things that I didn't think were going to be able to be overturned. I've seen them overturned in the past. It's just a question of finding the way of changing our society. Well, the problem we now face, Colin, and I, we, we would totally agree with you, you know, I was involved as a child in the Franklin Dam campaign and had first-hand experience and people power. Um, very empowering experience that was formative to me um, and, and I think Tristan would say the same. But the predicament we face at the moment relies us to change the laws of physics. <laughs> That's the reality of it because the climate can't be restabilised. That is beyond human capacity, beyond technological capacity. Extinct species can't be resurrected again, beyond human capacity, and well, 8, 8 billion people depend upon, inhabit the planet largely because of fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are a unique and once abundant energy source. Yeah, look, I'm sorry, Kate. I, I can remember being back in the 1970s when the demise of fossil fuels was predicted to be early in the 21st century. That didn't happen because they came up with new ways to change their place by fracking and things like that. But we were then all ready to, um, to find ways to live without fossil fuels. We weren't going to be, we thought that the oil was going to run out. And at that time, we thought we were going to be leaving our, ch our children and grandchildren a planet without any renewable or, or energy supply. But that didn't come about. So, so I recently presented at the University of Tasmania along energy expert, renowned energy expert, uh, Richard Heinberg. Um, and uh, in, this, in this regard, it needs to be understood that we never would have got past 3.5 billion humans without mm. the Haber-Bosch process of turning fossil fuels into fertiliser. And without those fossil fuels... <laughs> what happens to that population and and you know more than that we don't have the ecosystem services that we used to because our ecosystems are in collapse the topsoil's gone so it's not like we can just grow our way out of this as we can't and and the the notion of finding a new magic technology to somehow replace the fracking that is running out because there are diminishing returns on every technology that gets it gets added and so you're squeezing 
blood from the stone until there is no more blood to give. And that's where we are. So back to, again, what is your solution and, and uh, what are these communities out there going to do? Well, we, we don't talk in terms of solutions because this is not a problem that can be solved. It's a predicament that can be responded to. So insurgent planning is a um, a form of planning that's grassroots. It's about communities or groups working together to ensure or at least sustain as far as possible um, basic needs. Because as collapse intensifies, we're going to see a radical relocalization as global supply chains contract and other global systems collapse. Um, so it's bringing it back to local communities, um, not not in an easy sense, not in a romantic sense. This is in a, a, the, the sense of reality that people will need um, to be more focused on local resources and their local communities to survive. So what are we talking about? Are we talking about get some guns, build some walls? <laughs> so this is this is because we're a global platform and because collapse happens differently in different places because of different ecological factors, political factors, cultural factors, economic factors, um, communities have to work out for themselves how they respond within collapse. And, you know, there's classic stories of US preppers hoarding weapons. I mean, that's not something we're um, interested in. We're interested in social and eco ecological justice as a way of easing the descent. Yeah. And I would just like to point out that if we adopted some kind of prescriptive attitude, you know, that would be highly imperialist, you know, regarding <laughs> regarding other other countries, other nations, other other uh, other cultures, and uh, so you know, we have a very decentralized, decolonized um, platform. Mm. Just pursuing the the justice bit of it. How do you mm. see that? changing the system i've got very bad news there <laughs> tony the system is changing and it's changing itself um because it's collapsing that's the that's the the very bad very very bad news um it wants to maintain itself it will try to maintain itself for as long as possible but it, ultimately it cannot that's um we're way into ecological overshoot um which which is the um the 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 predicament that is leading to all these uh, all all these symptoms like climate change, which is only one terrible, dreadful um, symptom of our overshoot predicament, but they, they all lead to the same place, and that place is collapse. Specific examples of socio-ecological justice. I'll just run through those quickly. It's things like depending on where you are and who you are. It's things like protecting ecosystems, so the native forests campaigns around the country it's stopping mining um it's it's advocating for and assisting homeless people to have fair and equitable access to shelter it's ensuring that that people aren't going cold and hungry in local communities it's all these types of things many things that we're very familiar with in the progressive movement but the key difference in the, the 21st century in the collapsing world is that these are not about building a better world because we've lost the capacity to do that. They're about easing the descent, the inevitable descent that we're well 
um, that is well underway. And regarding insurgent planning, which is the process that um, has been described and articulated by academics and activists in the global south, which is the which is the attitude that that um, that we're adopting and what we're advising, that insurgent planning it does not ask and wait, right? So it doesn't sit back and say, let's appeal through the political process to governments to for, for change that they arguably can't deliver and won't deliver. It's not an ask and wait. Insurgent planning is take and do. So yeah. it's it's about this is rebelling against the system. This is regardless of what governments want, you do what you need to do to deliver whatever socio-ecological justice you can in the dire predicament that we're in. So we have a free online book on our website, Little Book of Insurgent Planning, lots of examples in there and context and links to academic papers on the topic, www.justcollapse.org. People are already insurgently planning. All around the world, people are already doing it. This is cold. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. We are the land of droughts and flooding rains. We recognise that. It is a very volatile and often capricious climate. At the heart of this conflict is a battle between truth and science and power and lies. Um, I'm thinking after that discussion, the last 20 minutes or so, that the solution, if there is a solution, only can be got by the redistribution of wealth because it's quite clear that the people who've got the money are hell-bent on keeping it and that and keeping the status quo, which is a downward spiral into collapse, as you said. Which was, Colin, what the French Revolution was about in the 1700s, wasn't it? Exactly. That the, the poor and the rich and, and that whole topic, you've opened up a whole big topic there that we need another we hour. Can't, we can't do it now, can we? We've run out of time, <laughs> but, but we'd but, love uh, please, but, please come back again. Yes, and we're not shy of uh, discussing these topics. I mean, we already have a series we call the Climate Revolution, where we discuss bigger topics in this in this regard. So uh, stay tuned for more from the Sustainable Hour as we go down the path of collapse. And it's not enough, as we've learned today, to be the difference, actually. We need to be together. Yeah, be together on the downward spiral to collapse. That's the worry of the thing, isn't it? Viva la revolution! <laughs> I believe we all came to be here for a reason. To acknowledge the seniors, everything has a season. This season is warm, but it's bringing a storm and a burning urge for our journey to transform. But held in our hand at this grave intersection is a map of the passage for a clearer direction to a permanent culture. It's time we began it with some wise design to realign with the planet, share skills to rebuild our combined reliance, and with wild guidance, redesign our diet, befriend energy descent and the changing climate. To grow forests of food and a finer environment Permaculture at this tumultuous juncture Is a superstructure that can plug the puncture In a society of anxiety, confusion and greed This really may be one solution we need to bring
bring back our elementary essence of ethics and walk in earth care people care fair share epic now's the time to embed it while the temperature's tepid let us rise as a choir beside the people who get it to guarantee that our future generations lives are provided the conditions they require to thrive instead of being deprived of the tools to survive in a biosphere too defiled to revive so we invite you now to amplify the synergy devise and inspire distinctive soliloquy combining with like minds an adaptable symphony of radical simplicity balance and symmetry whatever your ability we need your assistance in aid of reclaiming a stable existence go summon your gift at this critical hour and deliver wherever they move and empower